Welcome to the Base Path Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Guttenplan, along with co-host Matt Feld in studio. We are just days away from the start of the college baseball season. So this podcast is going to be a Division I preview. Matt, how are you feeling just a few days before the start of the college baseball season? I know, coming up this upcoming Friday, Friday the 18th, I think, or 17th, first day of the, the Division I college baseball season. Certainly an exciting time. All the uh, Northeast teams usually uh, head south for good reason. Maybe not so much this time around, but much warmer, much warmer weather, much better climate. But a lot of the teams up here heading south. Yeah, it is. It is kind of a hurry up and wait type of thing. Like everybody starts on Friday, but I think I know BC is playing out in Pepperdine in California. UConn is playing Ohio State down in Florida. So it's it's like you're we're not going to be able to go to games, but it's just exciting because I think, you know, once it starts, it's, you know, high school prep start in March and then you know, Red Sox are in April and then we're off and running until October. And then it's always fun to have baseball to talk about rather than kind of speculate on what's going to happen in the next six months. Yeah, I'm pretty jealous if Boston College going to Pepperdine. Pepperdine might have the most beautiful baseball field in the country. For those that have, uh, haven't seen it, I strongly encourage you to look it up there. Their outfield pretty much looks like right over the water with the mountains in the background. It's absolutely, absolutely beautiful. So regardless of the success of the trip from a win-loss standpoint, certainly very jealous and envious from that perspective. It's funny. We we hear about guys from New England occasionally going to Pepperdine now. It seems like it's happening more and more. A Jack Goodman last year from Medfield. Somebody just committed. They sent me an email. We do that commits list, 2023, 2024 commits. And somebody just sent me an email that was like, hey, I just committed to Pepperdine in the class of 24. And I was like, wow, that's a good choice by you. <laughs> oh, yeah, 100%. I feel like, you know, if it's so touch and go with recruits around here. I feel like either kids want to and take a lot of pride in staying in New England. It's where they grew up. Maybe their parents played a college sport here. Or they jump at the opportunity to, to get out and head to the West Coast. I feel like when kids get offered from a school on the West Coast or in the Southeast, they, they feel like it's such a unique opportunity that so many others up here don't necessarily get the opportunity to because a coach saw them at a national tournament or, you know, in a you know perfect game, WWBA national championship, that they almost have to jump at the opportunity. How could you pass up an opportunity to go to Pepperdine or Vanderbilt or Tennessee, Florida, whatever. Any school that's outside of here, it feels like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that only so few select players, particularly from Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Connecticut, are afforded. Yeah, and it's unfortunately we're not going to be joining BC out to Pepperdine <laughs> and be able to cover it. But I wanted to start, you know, before we get started, we're going to take a look at the top 10 teams that we ranked for New England Baseball Journal, some of the top returning players, and just kind of take general looks at the state of the programs. You know, where are they recruiting? Who are they recruiting? Is this a program on the rise? Do they need to kind of rebuild? We're going to kind of go through all of our Division One programs and do that. Before we do, though, if you were if you were to name either one program or one player that if you had a chance to kind of keep an eye on them this weekend, like I said, we're not going to be seeing them in person. Is there any New England program or player that you're really eager to see how it starts for them at this college season? I'm really interested in seeing how Alex Haber does at Merrimack this year. Yeah, Merrimack's kind of undergone a bit of a rebuild or retransformation. Of course, Brian Murphy, now the head coach there, back for his second season. And they had a tough goal of it last year, mostly because of some struggles on the mound. But Haber's been a tremendous player for them throughout his tenure there. It was a great player at Franklin, helped them win a Super 8 championship, has been a standout. Was dealing with some injuries that prevented him from playing from summer ball. But he's proven to be a really high-level hitter, particularly from a power standpoint. At the Division One level, I think he's been kind of an under-the-radar breakout star up here in New England. So I'm going to be really interested to see the type of season that he has this time around because I think he's putting himself in contention to potentially be a professional baseball player and it's it would have been it would be pretty unique and, and pretty cool I think he's like I said I've been a player that maybe not a lot of people have spent a lot of time on or attention on we're talking about Northeastern BC Connecticut for most of the programs up here but he's certainly blossomed into a big time position player up there at Merrimack 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing BC's starting pitchers. I mean, like, if you look at their lineup, they have Vitrano back, Honeyman's first-round draft pick, Cam Leary. So they're going to have a strong, you know, 2-3-4, 1-2-3 in the batting order. The the pitching staff is a little bit of a question mark, which it was last year, too. They started a freshman last year, Sean Hard, on opening day. It'll be interesting to see how they kind of slot their pitching staff because that was kind of a weakness last year. And, and you know, if they can make that a strength, they have a lot of transfers who might kind of end up being weekend starting pitchers for them. It'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. Number one. So why don't we start with UConn? Because I think, you know, in our top 10, they're our number one seed. I don't think anyone has them outside of one right now. They they won 50 games last year. They were 50 and 16. They were one win shy of what they are just determined. Just, you know, the perseverance to reach that Omaha stage of the NCAA tournament. They're they're so hungry for that, and it comes up in every conversation when you're talking to Coach Penders or Coach McDonald. Coach Penders is in his 20th season now, and he's he's really that elusive trip to Omaha is what he's really gunning for. Over the last, I want to say, year or two, UConn has really become a landing spot for top transfers who are either you know coming from big-time D1 programs and they're trying to find a mid-major that's going to be competitive every year, get themselves in that top 25 discussion. So what it seems that UConn is kind of doing right now is they they almost clear the deck after each year, and it doesn't matter who was the starting shortstop, if, if he's returning. Like there is, I don't want to say there's no loyalty, but there's no bias, you know, coming from one year to the next. Like this guy was a starter last year, so he's going to be a starter this year. Or, hey, this guy was a freshman at first base. We don't need to recruit at that position. I feel like Coach Penders and Coach McDonald are constantly trying to create co- competition at every spot. doesn't matter who was starting last year. And uh, they have a lot of transfers again this year. They had eight starters last year. Their top pitcher was a transfer. Their Sunday starter was also Sunday starter as a pitcher was also a transfer. And here they are back this year with a lot more transfers. Coach Penders thinks he's going to have at least one transfer injected into the middle of the lineup, maybe two. Luke Broadhurst is back on the UConn campus after you know doing East Con- Eastern Connecticut for a few years. What is your take on UConn this year, and do you see them being able to, uh, you know, for a mid-major like that, it's so hard to get so close to Omaha like they did last year and fall one win short. Is there any way they can put together the talent to be right there again this year? Well, it's funny. I mean, as you mentioned, they try to they pretty much follow the 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 belief of it's not about what you've done for me in the past it's what you've done for me lately right they don't they don't take a there's certainly there's stars and the and the and the kind of the fulcrum of their team that they take a lot of pride in but they're looking for pieces that are going to get them to the next level I mean they certainly lost stars from last year Pat Gallagher who led the Big East in wins and set the program record for wins got drafted by the Toronto Blue Jays so a big hole to full to to fill certainly in the rotation but I think when you look at their lineup up and down I think you're talking about a lineup that is certainly more than good enough to put itself on the doorsteps of Omaha. You talked to the transfers that they brought in. Nico Brini is a freshman that they brought in from right here in Plymouth who has a lot of speed and I think, you know, is a dynamic playmaker potentially in the outfield for Penders Club. I think one thing to really watch and one thing to really look at is that Connecticut's pretty much put itself now on the map nationally. Beat going to the Super Regionals, playing at Stanford, going to Game 3. They were up one nothing. They were 
you know, nine innings away from the College World Series. I think they'll probably get a lot more national respect from the NCAA selection committee this time around now that they've kind of established themselves back to back Big East champions, a no brainer both in both circumstances of getting into the NCAA tournament. I think they've pretty much solidified themselves that they have to play themselves out of the tournament more than play themselves in. And I think when we're talking about the NCAA tournament with other Division One programs up here, they, they either have to win their conference title to get in or they have to have gone on a ridiculous run in their non-conference schedule leading up to their conference play. I think UConn might be the other way around where people already assume that they're going to make it like a lot of other premier programs across the country, but they've earned the respect that I think they have to play their way out. And as you mentioned, when you're talking about transfers, whether they've come from Eastern Connecticut or Wien, where they've already established themselves and become stars at the Division Three level, they're bringing in guys that have won at a high level, whether there was a national championship or in conference tournaments that I don't I don't know if they're going to compete to necessarily win the, the College World Series this year, but I think they're going to be right back on the doorstep this time around because I think they've proven that they deserve that opportunity. Yeah, and they and they just reload, you know, even if it's through the transfer portal. I do want to ask you, though, as someone who works, you know, with the travel ball program and also, you know, you cover these for the Herald, you cover these high school kids who are trying to find places to land in New England top D1 programs. You know, when a school like UConn brings in, you know, eight transfers a year and that's their starting lineup every year. And then these high school kids from New England or, or even Connecticut in particular are looking at that and saying like, hey, that's going to be a hard road for me to earn a starting job. One third of the players on the UConn roster are Connecticut natives. So it's not like they're ignoring their home state, but it's, it's not as much as you would see it like UMass or Rhode Island or Maine or any of those. Is it a good thing that UConn is establishing this as their recruiting strategy? Like, hey, we're bringing in guys who have performed at the college level, not so much freshmen who are looking for D1 commitments. I think the important thing is just the honesty from the coaching staff. So if the coaching staff is interested in a recruit that's a sophomore or a junior, and they go to them and say, we'd love to have you, but you're probably not going to play until you're a junior. As long as the open communication is there between the coaching staff and the player, so the player's not going in there with false expectations, I think that's the big thing. And then the player has to turn around and understand that they've got a lot of work to do because you're battling against proven college players that have not just performed at the college level, but performed at an extraordinarily high level. You know, extraordinarily high level. So I think the big thing there is just the communication back and forth. I don't necessarily disagree with the strategy, though, of Connecticut. They're trying to play with the best programs in the country now. They're trying to prove that they're not just the best program in New England, but they can beat UVA, they can beat Vanderbilt, they can beat Tennessee, South Carolina, Ole Miss. And so they're trying to find the best players in that given year that are going to give them that opportunity to go ahead and, and do that. So I don't find a lot of fault in the recruiting strategy, or I shouldn't even call it recruiting strategy, roster construction strategy of the UConn coaching staff. I just think players have to know, or prospective players have to know, that that's what they're about. And as long as there's both sides and an understanding both ways, I really don't think there's a problem with it. I think there's a problem if a coach promises a player playing time and then they show up and all of a sudden here's this junior you know, from Dayton that's already hit 30 home runs or something previously. But I, I do have get a feeling and get a sense that players do understand for the most part from a coaching staff you know, what it's going to be like the first couple of years. I think players know, okay, well, I could go to this school, but I've been told I'm not going to play until I'm a sophomore or junior. Is that what I'm comfortable doing? So I think that's, I think that's the big thing is that players just have an understanding of what the expectations are when they get there. Yeah, and it sounds like Nico Brini, who you mentioned, a BC high guy, may play a role this year. I don't know, if, you know, I don't think he's going to be a starter, but he's going to contribute. And a uh, guy, Ryan Daniels, who's from Connecticut, is also a freshman that might play a role so it's not impossible for these guys to step in. One thing I didn't know about, we just had a print edition and the cover story was on Eastern Connecticut and they've become kind of a fallback. If, if, a, if a Connecticut guy gets recruited by, you know, the Penders and, and McDonald and that staff 
and they land at UConn and they don't quite fit at that mid-major Division One level, and UConn's playing, you know, uh, on a national level now. A lot of those guys end up transferring to Eastern Connecticut. Four guys on their uh, Division Three national champion team last year started at UConn, and then I think, you know, when they realized either there wasn't a path to playing time or they weren't quite at that mid-major Division One level, they went back to Eastern Connecticut, were fortunate enough to win a national championship. So there is a little bit of a kind of a feeder system in state there between Connecticut and Eastern Connecticut. That's interesting. I wonder if other coaches will model that in other states. Yeah, it's, 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 it is definitely very unique. Also a new coaching staff at Eastern Connecticut now. So that'll be interesting too, to kind of monitor the back and forth to see if it, if it keeps up that way. Right. I, and it, I don't know that it will. I talked to Mike Odenwalder and he's not quite as motivated <laughs> on bringing in the older guys and the, the, the transfers as much. I think he wants to kind of have the homegrown program a little bit more than Brian Ham had it, but who can knock Brian Ham? He won a national championship. <laughs> Number two. Number two on our top 10 list, and you could debate whether BC belongs in this spot, and we're going to talk about BC next because they're our number three team, but this is our top 10 rankings that were compiled by Josh Cummins with input from the New England baseball coaches. So, the coaches think Northeastern belongs in this number two spot, a colonial athletic team, obviously that not, not as strong a conference as the ACC, but Mike Lavin has led that team to a lot of success in the last few years. Last year was kind of a just an unlucky year for Northeastern. They, they just didn't get their offense going all year. They were missing some guys with injuries. Danny Crossan missed some time last year, and then you know some guys struggled. Max Vieira was supposed to be kind of a cornerstone offensive piece. He had a a down year, hit, hit around 200. But they did bring in some more transfers this year. They've got Harrison Feinberg, who they brought back from University of Southern California. Tyler McGregor is going to be a key contributor for them, too, who's a transfer. He's from Peabody, Massachusetts. So Northeastern's trying to get their offense going a little bit through the transfer portal. They also have their top pitchers back in Eric Yost and uh, the, their ace. Who was their ace last year? That I'm I'm blanking on his name here. Wyatt Scotty. Yes, yeah, yeah. Wyatt Scotty. So they have they have a lot back, and then they're always competitive in the Colonial Athletic. Last year they finished 31, 29, and one, sixth place in the Colonial. They lost a key guy, Dennis Collar, and last year ended up having Tommy John. I don't know if we'll see him at all this year because he did it about halfway through the season last year. He may miss this entire year and take a redshirt year, but. They have, uh, they have a lot of talent. They probably have a little bit more experience than they had last year since they did make a, little, a few more moves to the transfer portal. What, do you, what sticks out to you this year as you look at that Northeastern roster? Yeah, you mentioned it, but they get their leading hitter back from last year, Mike Sirota, who led the team, I think he about 325, 330. A bit of a disappointing year last year. They struggled offensively. They could never seem to you know, get going. You know, they, they, they looked like the best team in the conference for two games. They looked like one of the worst teams in the conference for two games. Just a very big up-and-down season. And they have holes to fill because they lost guys to the draft last year, especially from the starting staff. But maybe not a bad thing. Get some fresh blood. I think Alex Lane, the transfer from Bryan, could be a huge addition to Glavin's lineup. He's a power bat in the middle of the order who developed consistency at Bryan, proved to be a power hitter to all fields. And I think he's going to provide something that Northeastern hasn't had the last couple of years, someone that can really kind of turn the game around with one swing of the bat. I think they've been lacking that in a lot of 
of respect. So I think he's going to be a huge contributor to watch out for. I'm interested to see if Avon Cabral, the freshman from St. Mary's, gets any significant time this go-around. Like I said, they lost guys to the draft last year. Sebastian Keem, Cam Schlittler. So they've got spots to fill. Dennis Colloran, as you mentioned, might be out for the season. Recovering from Tommy John. Cabral was a standout. He was a superstar at St. Mary's. Charlie Walker's at Northeastern now from Milton. So I think there could be opportunities behind Wyatt Scotty to to develop some depth in that rotation. I'm going to be interested to see how much Glavin kind of relies on those freshmen to rebuild the rotation. And the one guy we should definitely mention is Jordy Allard. He was, a, uh, he was a transfer from Babson. So, you know, came from the D3 route to Northeastern. He was named the top prospect on the Cape last year. He's not a guy that you look at and say, you know, that's an ace. You know, that's a Friday starter because he's probably... He might be like 5'9", you know, 185 or 200, but all he does is just, you know, pepper the, the strike zone, and he's really tough at bat for everybody. And, you know, I, I think you slot him in as a, a weekend starter for you and just ride that out all year. I'm sure he would have a lot of success in the Colonial Athletic Association. No doubt. One thing that for Northeastern, too, we were just talking about Connecticut kind of having that national respect. Northeastern's non-conference schedule is huge for them as well if they just don't want to be a team that has to win their conference tournament in order to get into the, turn- in order to get into the NCAA tournament come the middle of May. They have to perform really well in their non-conference schedule, especially against the locals around here where they play B.C., I think they play UMass as well. They mm-hmm. really have to perform well, particularly up here in the Northeast, and take care of business. So there's going to be a lot of pressure on them when they face off against a team like Boston College, who we'll talk about in a moment, to perform because they just don't have yet the pedigree that maybe a UConn does when it comes to the selection. So they don't have the pressure to win the conference tournament necessarily to get in. Right. Number three. And that brings us to BC who obviously it's going to be very difficult to win the ACC, but you don't need to to make the, the tournament You know, in the ACC. They probably get like six or seven teams in. Last year, BC, 19-34. and 34. They were seventh in the ACC. That was 5-25 and 25 record in the conference, which they'll want to improve that record. Coach Mike Gambino is in his 13th season, a career record 254 and 346. We ta- I mentioned earlier, they have some high draft prospects, and they always seem to have high draft draft prospects you know sal is it freelich or frelich Freelick, yeah Freelick. he was a first round guy a few years ago a top 10 pick in the draft he's on his way up to the majors bc just has a history you know emmett sheehan you know chris shaw justin dunn all these guys that are you know very high draft picks this year it's going to be travis honeyman who was a potential first round pick joe vetrano you know, maybe top five rounds cam leary he had 16 home runs last year he's a professional prospect they have they you know they have some top end talent at BC and they always do. They they obviously have the challenge of playing in the ACC. I don't even know who you would say is BC's rival in the you know is it Wake Forest? They're a top ten team this year. They're playing some very difficult teams, a very difficult schedule. They have improved their facilities at BC. They have the Pete Frady Center now, which now is rivaling anywhere in the country. You know. Mike Gambino was so integral in, you know, the marketing of the Pete Frady's campaign and raising money. And he's he's a lifer at BC. He played there. I wonder, though, you know, obviously five and twenty five record in the ACC. You need to improve on that. This is Division one athletics. This is the ACC, which is even, you know, ramped up a little bit more than the standard Division one program. Do you think that and obviously BC has changed basketball coaches in the last few years. They've changed football coaches. Do you think there's any extra pressure on Mike Gambino going into this season, or do you think 
he, he can be comfortable knowing, you know, all that he's done for the program off the field, outside of the, the win-loss record. When you talk to, I think, players and, and coaches around the league and people at Boston College, they've got great respect, you know, for Mike Gambino. You know, the players I've talked to that have played for him have great respect for him, really enjoyed playing for him. As you mentioned, he did so much to build the Freddy's facility and kind of spearhead that brand new baseball field as well to go with it. I think... I think you have to give him a year or two now, at least, with the new facilities built. I think you're going to attract better players, better players from the Northeast in particular, because of the resources that they have at their disposal. The campus is making great renovations. So one thing that I always look at when I look at BC, being in the ACC, playing the conference that they're in, is you don't have to go 40 and oh in the conference in order to make the tournament. You don't even have to go maybe you know 28 and 12. With a 500 record in the ACC, which is much easier said than done, of course, when you're looking at the schedule, they are going to put themselves in position to potentially be a tournament team. Now, their lineup to me is outstanding. I think the lineup's got the chance to be really good this year. You mentioned the power hitters that they've got in their bat, excuse me, in their lineup. Their pitching's going to be the question mark, just like it was a year ago. They're going to need guys to step up that, that did not a year ago in order for them to be successful. And when you look at their schedule, you're talking about road trips to Virginia Tech. You're talking about playing Tennessee. You're talking about NC State. You're talking about Duke at Louisville. You're talking about a gauntlet of a schedule across the board every way you look at it. Conversely, one would say that that provides, you know, and presents great opportunities. One thing that I'm going to be interested at is that Boston College over the years has actually gone off to a pretty good start to their schedule. South Felix junior year when he got drafted, I think BC was ranked at one point early in the season. They went down to Auburn, won two out of three. They got off to a tremendous start, and then when they got into league play, they struggled. Their pitching hit a wall, and they really started to suffer a little bit. I'm going to be interested to see not just the start of the season that BC gets off to this time around, but how they maintain that going into conference play. I think the first half of Boston College's conference schedule is going to be huge in dictating their season. If you dig yourself a hole... In any capacity in the ACC, it's really hard to climb yourself out of when you look at the competition that you're going against. But I think BC's opening weekend at Virginia Tech, then they go to Florida State. Those are two really tough road series to start your schedule. And if you can find a way to at least go 500 in the ACC to start between those two series, you give yourself an opportunity before you come home against NC State, Georgia, and then a, and then a midweek with UMass. So I think the start of the season is huge for BC. I think they have to get a good start off in the ACC. But to me, the big thing is that the players there they have to perform at the end of the day. And last year, BC's pitching staff did not perform. They had the worst ERA in the league, if I'm correct. I think it was an over 70 ERA. So, yeah. And so I think it's on them. I think their lineup's going to produce. I think the last couple of years, BC's lineup's been pretty good. You mentioned the guys that have gone on to play at the next level, Chris Shaw, Sal Freelich being at the start of the Cody Moore set. I think their lineup's going to produce big time. But I think their pitching staff's the big thing that needs to correct itself this time around if they want to have a chance of competing at the level of some of their ACC counterparts. Yeah, and I feel like he kind of is lowering that margin for error a little bit by bringing in some more than normal this year to kind of round out that roster. Henry Leak, he's been there for, he was a D3 transfer. He might be at the front of the rotation. Sean Hart, who I mentioned was a big time recruit coming out of high school. He could be at the front of the rotation. John West is a good player. He's been on the Cape. Chris Flynn is a, a transfer from Roger Williams. He had a lot of success there. And Andrew Roman is coming from Sal Regina. So maybe some of these D3 transfers plug in. I don't know if they're ACC quality weekend starters. Hopefully somebody emerges in that role. Maybe Sean Hard has a, a really good bounce back year after earning an opening day start as a freshman. But yeah, BC, I definitely like to see him improve on that 5-25 five, five and 25 ACC record. They had some bad luck last year with injuries too. Yeah, one thing too, 
when you look at it, I think they are, you know, Sam McNulty from Milton Academy. I think they're relying on a lot more this time around. I do think that they've got a chance to have one of the better catchers in the league in Peter Burns, who's a veteran catcher at this point. He's a captain for the team. He's either a four or five year player for them. I think he's someone that they're going to rely upon heavily. I just think, you know, you just mentioned to it, BC's going to have to win games with their pitching and defense. I mean, that's just what they are, especially being a Northeast team. They're going to have to be able to be locked down, not just on the mound, but defensively as well. You know, as Joshua Cummings wrote in his preview for Boston College, that's also an area where they lacked last year was defensively tremendously. And I think that's where they're going to have to make the biggest strides. Because, again, I think they're going to score runs. I think they're going to score a lot of runs in a lot of games. But I think the big thing is they have to be able to hold teams to four, five, six runs more consistently. I feel like you're not asking a lot. I know they're facing tough lineups, but I think if you want to compete at a high level, you have to be able to do that. And last year, they just gave there were too many instances when you go back and look at the results last year where they were letting up 10, 11, 12 runs a game. And that's just not sustainable. Yeah. I like Donis Guzman as a freshman, too. I should mention him. But he's from Brunswick School, and I like that he's going to be behind Peter Burns for a year to learn. I like the Nick Wang transfer from Holy Cross. He's a good player. So BC, who knows? Yeah, maybe they make some noise this year and go on a good run. Number four. The next school in our ranking, number four, Harvard. And Harvard's got to be careful. With Brian Ham going to Yale, I think it's a matter of time before that rivalry gets tightened up again. Brian Hamm, really great coach at Eastern Connecticut. He's had some experience at Amherst. So I think that Harvard-Yale rivalry is really going to get ignited. But let's talk about Harvard now. 2022 record was 19-22, and 22, so they were a little bit under 500. They were 10-11 and 11 in the Ivy League, tied for fourth place. Bill Decker's back for his 10th season he kind of has that Brian Ham resume of like uh, one of the great, great Division three teams he was a coach of, won a national championship at that level. Now he's at Harvard. They have some guys that feel I feel like have been there forever. Lo- Logan Bravo, <laughs> uh, he's an Austin prep guy. He's now a 32 senior. years old. <laughs> yeah, he's had some success on the Cape. Will Jacobson, a good two-way player, infield, right-handed pitcher. They've got good players. Jake Berger, who's a BB&N graduate he's in he is probably right in the middle of their order this year corner infielder and they've got some good players jay driver he's a draft prospect he's probably i don't know if he'll move he was a closer for them last year i I don't know if he'll be in the starting rotation this year they'll keep him at the end of the games but five all ivy returning players on a pitching staff that struck out 9.8 batters last year driver had a lot of success on the cape bravo's you know middle of the order bat this looks like a pretty pretty complete roster, I would say. What do you think of Harvard this season? Yeah, Harvard has not been to the NCAA tournament since 2019 when they had a great pitching staff led by uh, by Hunter Biggie, who I think is slow with the Chicago Cubs. But to me, this is a, a team that could return to the NCAA tournament this time around. I think this has got a, t- a chance to be a really, really strong team all the way around. You mentioned it, but Jay Driver, who was a closer last year, would not be surprised if they moved into the rotation this year. That's a pretty natural transformation, particularly at college baseball. I feel like for arms, he was sensational for them last year. He carried it over to the Cape, facing players from all over all over the country, and and I think he's been incredibly impressive. Jacobson, like you mentioned, an established arm, someone who's done it all for them there. And I think their lineup, as you mentioned, I mean, Logan Bravo, I I do kind of joke about it, but undoubtedly an established bat in the middle of the lineup. You're talking about someone who doesn't doesn't just know the ins and outs of, of Harvard baseball, but probably knows everything about every other team in the conference at this point and kind of how we go and how they go about attacking lineups. When I look at this team, I'm thinking about a team that certainly can compete for an Ivy League championship. And I would not be stunned if they, as a result, they were back in the NCAA tournament. I think we'll, we'll talk about some of the other Ivy League potentially coming up, Ivy League teams coming up. But I think when you look at Harvard's team, top to bottom, they're as complete as you're going to get in the Ivy League this time. Yeah, and they have probably the best freshman I mean, Adonis Guzman, also a very good freshman recruit for BC, but 
Gio Colasante was yep. a guy that was getting recruited, I think, like Vanderbilt, you know, those big-time Virginia, those big-time D1 national championship contenders. Ends up at Hartford, so the, or I mean, excuse me, Harvard. So that's a that's a great get for them. Number five, Bryant University. We have in the number five spot Ryan Klosterman. It's now his fourth season, so you know he's he carried some momentum from the Steve Owens years in Bryant. Steve Owens got hired at Rutgers and led them to like a forty and fifteen record or something last year. So he's. Steve Owens is still having a ton of success as a, a D1 college baseball coach. But Ryan Klosterman's kind of making his own mark here. Bryant's making a transition to America East from the Northeast Conference. So they'll have a different schedule, different opponents, things like that. Jake Gustin's back for Bryant. He seems like he's been there forever. They have a, you know, Jackson Finney is a guy who was a really good prep school player. I think he went to Nobles. Yeah. Chase Jeter had a lot of success at Hartford. I'm struggling with the Harvard Hartford today, but Chase Jeter also had some good outings on the Cape. Ken Turner is another Hartford transfer. Kyle Rizzi's brother Maverick is a big time recruit, but Kyle's had a lot of success at Bryant. How do you think this transition to America East will impact Bryant? I think it's going to have a, well, I think it's certainly had somewhat of an impact. I still think Bryant, to me, when I talk to kids up here in the Northeast, at least, who have Division One aspirations, Bryant's always a school that comes to mind. I think they've kind of asserted themselves. They had a really good run at the end of the 2010s there where they were going to the NCAA tournament and competing in the NCAA tournament and some with a couple of high-level cla- classes. And they, when they moved over last year, really, I mean, 30 and 27, they, they went 17 and 10 in league play. I think they've, you know, laid a strong foundation. Eric Pelletier, the recruiting coordinator, coordinator over there, has done a really, really good job in recruiting local talent. Gustin, Jake Gustin, who's from Peabody, as you mentioned, was a transfer to me is one of the best players in the New England this time around. When you're looking at a college level, he's experienced, he's polished both ends defensively, top of the lineup. He's been sensational in every respect. But I think Brian, as Joshua mentioned in his preview in the in the magazine, they're going to rely on some guys that have been suffered from injuries the last couple of years to return the rotation and, and, and be successful. Matt Stansky being one of them. Stansky was a great pitcher at St. John Shrewsbury, helped lead them to a state championship. And since he's gone to school, he's just battled so many injuries. But now they're relying on him to be, a, to be at the very least the middle of the rotation, middle of the week weekend arm, if not a top flight bullpen arm, and they're going to rely a lot on him. Turner is someone who's out again, same thing, like Stansky, missed the last couple of years with injuries. They're going to rely on him to, to fill the rotation. I think when you look at Brian's lineup, they're filling guys that, and they have to fill spots that were departed. We talked about Alex Lane, who was a standout of Bryant. Now he's at Northeastern. They've lost other guys like Matt Woods, who was at Bryant. Now he's at Maryland, who were big time bats for them. But I think for them, I think for Brian, with the offensive gaps and with some of the openings that they've had in their lineup that they're relying on transfers on their own to film, I think the the depth in their pitching staff is going to be the biggest thing if they want to compete. But I think this team is more than good enough. I think the program's more than good enough, regardless of the conference change, to once again put itself in contention to win a league championship. They They showed that last year in their first year. Looking to keep up with all the latest news and information on New England baseball? New England Baseball Journal and BaseballJournal.com are the premier resources for information and inspiration on the New England baseball scene. Have every issue of New England Baseball Journal, the magazine, delivered to your home or office. And don't forget to stay in the game every day with a digital subscription to BaseballJournal.com to receive baseball coverage on clubs, college commits, prep and high school, Division One, Two, and Three colleges, showcases, rankings, and much more. Get in the game and behind the scenes now by going to BaseballJournal.com, 
just click on the subscribe button and start the subscription that is right for you today. New England Baseball Journal is a Siemens Media publication. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful. Number six. The next team we have on, so former Northeast rival with Bryant, is in our sixth spot, Central Connecticut State University. Charlie Hickey does a great job with that program. 24 years he's been there, 609 wins in his career. They were a second-place team in the Northeast Conference last year. Their ace this year is the brother of Frank Mazzucato, who was a like number six overall pick, I yeah. think, a few years ago in the 2021 MLB draft. He was drafted out of high school, highest player ever drafted from the state of Connecticut out of high school since Bobby Valentine. So Anthony Mazzucato is the ace for Central Connecticut. We had him in our last magazine as the left-handed preseason pitcher of the year in all of New England. But I just think Charlie Hickey knows you know, his recruiting base. He knows who he's looking for. He gets guys who are a little bit under the radar coming out of high school, but end up having great college careers. Noah Martinez is a big loss for them. He transferred to Pitt. He's been a standout in both summer league, you know, around New England over the last few years. He, he was great last year with 15 home runs for Central Connecticut. But without Bryant, I wonder if Central Connecticut can kind of move into that perennial favorite, perennial NCAA tournament team from the NEC. How do you see that impacting Central Connecticut and the fact that they're no longer have that rivalry rivalry with Bryant? It's funny you mentioned, I feel like Central Connecticut State gets under the radar or or just totally flies out of the picture. I think obviously when people think of big time division one programs up here, you got UConn, you got Northeastern, BC. I think sometimes Central Connecticut kind of gets swept under the rug. One thing that I look at when you talk about Central Connecticut is their pitching staff is pretty much all back. From last year, they returned 17 of their 29 wins from last year. You mentioned Anthony Mazzucato who, to me, is one of, if not the best pitcher in the Northeast this year. He's certainly going to make a strong case for it at the college level, but they've got other guys as well. Dominic Nimmin's back, who played a huge role for them last year as well. Central Connecticut State, to me, like you mentioned, Brian out of the conference. I don't know if it was a recruiting rivalry. I'm not the, the, I'm not sure about that. But in terms of the opportunity to compete, it certainly makes a huge difference. You know, last year they finished second play, tied for second place in the conference. And if you look at their league top to bottom, I think overall they've probably got the best pitching staff. You're talking about potentially the top three front line arms that you're going to find Friday, Saturday, Sunday, all back from a year ago. This is a chance to be a really strong team this time around. They're going to have to provide some offensive support. You know, Brady Short to me is an infielder that's improved a lot and is going to be relied upon big time by Charlie Hickey. But I think their rotation is as good as any in New England Friday, Saturday, Sunday when you look at it. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty stacked. Again, I I like the way that Charlie Hickey really kind of knows what that school is what that program is and you know gets the most out of it every well, you, year you look at where their players from their top players they're from connecticut yeah you might have a couple of massachusetts kids a couple of of new york kids but they're from connecticut he knows the guys they want to attack he, he knows the high schools and the leagues to attack and, and i agree with you i take a lot i think it's i think it's pretty cool i mean i feel like that's pretty unique nowadays people recruiting from all over when you can just recruit your own backyard and he's got a great stranglehold when you've got other great programs in connecticut like fairfield and sacred heart eastern connecticut from a division three standpoint to be able to kind of control the recruiting landscape there i think is pretty hard to do and he's totally grasped hold of it absolutely yeah and you think about you know uconn's getting some of those guys i said a third of their roster is connecticut guys eastern connecticut had 31 players on last year's roster you know connecticut a, a pretty prime recruiting ground for these big time programs that are doing really well number seven our number seven team you mentioned fairfield our number seven team is fairfield 
they so I'm actually surprised that that their record is so good from last year because it just seemed like they had terrible luck last year. Mike Handel, who was a draft prospect, was tore his ACL on the first game of the year last yes. year on a home run. I think he had a coming out of the box and tore his ACL or at some point in that first game he tore his ACL. They have Jake Noviello back who went through a terrible health scare and he had a you know he was coming off a year I think he was like 10 and 1 in 2021 and last year you know he had a health scare wasn't a factor for them they they're a team that still somehow went 31 and 20 last year 18 and 5 in the MAC they were regular season champion Bill Courier you know 12th season there he's doing a really good job he's got that program in good shape and Fairfield's always competitive in the MAC so yeah I'm looking here handle last year Received one at bat before tearing his ACL. He had a Mac leading 60 hits in 2021. So tough loss. Yeah, you figure like you're starting the season, you lose your best player, and you know they're still 18 and five in the Mac. So I'm I'm thinking they're they're due for a bounce back year with some of these guys on their roster. You know, coming back after an injury riddled 2022 season. What do you think? Well, Fairfield two years ago had that magical season where they won what the first like 28 games. I wish I knew the exact number, but it was yeah. something ridiculous. I mean, everyone in the country was watching them across the board. Baseball America, D1 Baseball, we're all doing stories on Fairfield's ridiculous start to yeah. the season. They were getting great crowds at the at their games. They ended up going to the NCAA tournament. They they earned an at-large bid. They lost in their conference tournament, and they, and they earned an at-large bid and, and competed very well in the Arizona State, or Texas Regional, excuse me, beating Arizona State. Last year, I think they brought a lot of their guys back from the year prior, and I think they were expecting to have a similar magical season and they did they once again won the mac regular season title but the regular season championship unfortunately does not count for much other than a banner maybe or a or a t-shirt you have to win the conference tournament in order to in order to go to the tournament but i think you're looking at a really strong group bill courier is one of the best baseball guys out there was a great coach at vermont when vermont had the program that they had and it's done a really good job at fairfield since i feel like this is always a team that relies on great experience senior heavy junior heavy not through transfer portals but because go guys go there they serve their time as freshmen and sophomores and they earn their time as junior and seniors i feel like careers always got great leadership in the program top to bottom Jake Noviello is probably the key to this team. Uh, you mentioned he had a sensational year two years ago, the year that they started 27-0 and won 40 games or 35 games. Last year came off the blood clot, whatever. You know, he had, I think, three or four different things going on that, that were life-threatening, let alone baseball-threatening, and he just never put it together. You wonder how much the injury kind of lingering effects from that had an impact on him. But they're going to rely on him heavily, I think, to be, if not a Friday, a Saturday guy every single weekend. He's shown he can do that in the past. I think they need that out of their senior. They're going to need him to be consistent every single weekend. They're going to need other guys to like Griffin Watson and and Mike Handel in their lineup but I think from a pitching standpoint when you look at what let them down the most last year it was their guys on the mound and I think Noviello is going to be at the center of trying to trying to be the one that kind of turns that around this year I think they're going to expect a lot out of him and I think they're going to need a lot out of him in order to be successful yeah they had uh, Mike Sansone was their ace the yes. last few years he's he was also a Cape League all-star they he signed a professional deal after last year but I do like this core. They have a lot of those guys who, who I think they went like 41 and three or something. That historic season you were talking about, 2021 with the 28 straight wins. Insane. Of, yeah, their record is nuts. <laughs> I think they were undefeated in the MAC during the regular season. It was crazy. Number eight. Our number eight team, I like Maine a lot. They're our number eight team. I think Maine could end up a lot higher on this list. I We had Nick Durba on the podcast, I want to say about a year ago, and I really liked what he had to say. They went 21-9 and in America East, first place in Division A in America East. So the, I think this is a program on the rise. Quinn McDaniel at short, I really like a lot. He's a good player. I saw him at the Summer Rivalry Classic last year. 
in the middle infield with Matt Shaw from Maryland. They, they were a great combo. Jeremiah Jenkins had a great freshman year at first base. He's a really good player. I just think this is a program on the rise that's going to be very competitive in America East. I feel the same way about UMass Lowell. I think that's going to be a really a rivalry that might determine the America East champion. What do you think about that budding rivalry between Maine and UMass Lowell? Absolutely. No, I agree with you. I think you're talking about two programs that are headed in the right direction for sure. I don't think there's any question about it. Maine's developed a strong pedigree. Nick Sinicola from, from Maine got drafted by the Giants. I don't know if it was last year or two years ago. I'm losing track here. I think it was 2021. 2021, eighth round by the Giants. And they've certainly developed a strong program of pitching. I've, I've noticed that they've increased their recruiting presence heavily in Massachusetts. I think it shows by their roster. But beyond Connecticut and New York, they've really kind of elevated the recruiting platform outside of Maine. UMass Lowell has tried to get a stranglehold, I feel like, on Massachusetts and Southern New Hampshire players. And they've done a good job of it. When you look at their best players, most of them are from right here in the surrounding areas and I feel like Ken Herring is kind of not necessarily tilted away from the grad transfers you know portal but he's relying heavily on freshmen and sophomores to contribute for them I think it's very intriguing because as I said I think Maine has developed a, a strong pedigree I think Maine's not an easy place to recruit from to get kids to go there if they're not from Maine I think people necessarily unfairly have a negative connotation towards I'm going to go free you know people think about the warm the, the weather here in Massachusetts forget forget Maine but they've done such a good job Nick Durba's done a tremendous job. I feel like putting that program firmly on the map, regardless of what his record is, just look at their success the last couple of years. 27-22 last year, they were 21-9. and in the conference, won the conference, and I think UMass Lowell's going to develop into kind of their premier rivalry in there. you got Binghamton in the conference, and they're always solid and formidable, but I think you're looking at two programs that are now not just recruiting in the conference, but they're going to start recruiting heavily for players as well, I think in a lot of circumstances and cases that they kind of elevate each other's success. Yeah, it's funny you say fairly or unfairly about the Maine weather, but I swam at UNH, and I remember we used to have our championship meet at Maine every year, and it was the end, end of February, and you would just get off the bus, and it would like, you know, there's ice everywhere on the ground, you'd be slipping around, the cold air would just hit you in the face, and you'd be like, why would anyone come to school here? <laughs> Luckily, all is not played in late February in Maine and Orono, so it's a little easier to recruit. They probably bring guys out in like late April and in May when the, when the weather's nice and they could be playing outside, but... Yeah, you're right. It does have its recruiting challenges. Number nine. I feel like we've, we've kind of leaked into the UMass Lowell discussion here. They're our number nine team, and you're absolutely right. I love, you know, when I'm seeing these guys commit to UMass Lowell now, it feels like they're recruiting, you know, the type of kids that maybe like Mike Glavin has recruited the last few years at Northeastern. These are, you know, big kids from Massachusetts who are and not, not always big, but like, you know, just athletic, you know, multi-sport athletes. You see UMass Lowell get these commitments and you're like, yeah, I think they are are going down the right path here. I think they have a good idea of what they're looking for. You did a story a few months ago on Ken Herring and how his recruiting philosophy has kind of evolved. I like that, you know, what he had to say. He uh, Jerry Syracuse back for another year and he's a, you know, f- first team All-America East player. Jacob hum- Humphrey had t- 46 stolen bases last year. He's a contributor at the Division One level. He's proven it. Robert Gallagher, Brandon Fish, you know, Proto behind the plate, Ryan Proto. He's a Barnstable guy who has played on the Cape Fritz, Genther. They, these are a lot of names who have had productive careers. The, I will say the question mark has got to be the pitching staff for UMass Lowell. They have a lot of guys who have contributed offensively over the last year or two. I don't know if LJ Keevan is your ace. He had a great freshman year. He's a left-handed pitcher. Maybe he's the first guy, you know, your Friday starter. Matt Draper's 
you know, a good player. I think the pitching is probably the biggest question mark. How do you see that shaking out for UMass Lowell? Yeah, I agree, right? You got Keevan back, who was an all-conference honoree, and you got Draper, who's in the back end of the bullpen. Interesting to see if Ken Herring keeps Draper in the back end of the pen, where he was so reliable last year. I think he had four saves, a sub-4 ERA. Does he move it in the rotation? Brian Foley's a freshman from, from Milton. I'm interested to see how much opportunity he gets from Ken Herring's club, a hard-throwing right-hander. I give UMass Lowell a lot of credit for sticking with Coach Herring, you know, the last... 20 years or so. I think it's his 18th year. But when they moved to Division One from the NE10, they did not get off to a great start those first couple of years. They really struggled to to succeed, as most programs I feel like that transfer from Division Two to Division One do. And it would have been easy to change coaches and or turn o- turn over. They've stuck with Ken Herring, and I think it's it's starting to pay off. You know, big time in a lot of respects. As you mentioned, when you look at the players that they are recruit, pretty similar as you alluded to in, in terms of the type of kids that they're bringing in. And I think this is a team that's going to hit. I think they're going to hit pretty consistently. I think they're lining up is going to grind you out. I think they were fourth in the country in stolen bases last year. So certainly a team that that's looking to run, but their pitching to me is going to be the biggest thing. I think this is a team that can compete for the conference championship. I think they lost in the semifinals last year of the conference tournament, if I'm not mistaken, to Binghamton. I think this is a team that can compete for the championship, but the big thing is going to be, is going to be their pitching staff. And, and Ken Herring's talked about in the story I did, bringing the walk rate down. That's been the biggest area of focus, just trying to decrease their walk rate decrease the free brace runners that they're allowing. It's been a problem for them in the past, and I think they're going to rely heavily on some younger arms this year to be successful. Because I think when you look at their lineup, it's probably as good as any lineup. We talked about Boston College's lineup earlier, but I think when you look at the guys they're returning, it's pretty strong 1-9 to nine across the board. Brandon Fish had 51 RBIs last year as a freshman. He's back, and so that's the big thing to me. Can they provide enough, of a, enough opportunities on the mound to keep their offense in the game? Yeah, I like that point about Ken Herring. I I had forgotten, you know, I guess I didn't forget, but, you know, they make that transition from D2 to D1, and you don't get all the scholarship money right away. You know, it's a slow transition where, like, you know, it's over a span of four years. No where, doubt. So it's a, it's a hard thing to do, and I know UMass Lowell, when they made that transition, did change some coaches and say, you know, we're looking for some, somebody with D1 experience or – and so, yeah, sticking with Ken, and he seems like he's really got the program kind of going in the right way. And I think they're another team that could move up this, you know, top 10 list. I don't know who comes out, you know, like Maine, Fairfield's going to have a good year, Central Connecticut, Bryant, you know, maybe maybe in that Harvard, Central Connecticut, Bryant range, somebody might come down, but I... I like all these teams in the top 10. Number 10. Well, the good news is I think BC and Northeastern and UMass, they're all, holy crap, they're all playing each other. So yeah, that's how it can settle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Number 10. Number 10, who we have number 10 is Rhode Island, who perennial, you know, under Rafael Serrato, very good program. They're a team that's competitive every year in the Atlantic 10. So I actually saw Rhode Island last year. You know, it's funny, all these teams come home after that, you know, so they spend the first month playing in like Florida, North Carolina, California. And then, you know, I'm so eager to see them when they finally get back here. I went down to Yukon for a game against Rhode Island. I think it was on a Friday afternoon last year, right after everybody had just come home and Yukon just smoked them. It was like an 18 to two game. Yeah. And then I kind of kept an eye on Rhode Island a little bit because I was like, man, they did not look good in that game. You know, they got rocked with their Friday starter. that didn't score many runs. So they started 2-18 and 18 last year, and that was kind of the last time I was like, all right, I'm not, I don't need to keep as close an eye on them. I don't think this is their year. They ended up finishing 14-10 and 10 in the Atlantic 10 last year, a fourth-place finish after you know starting the season 2-18. and 18. That's a impressive. It speaks to Coach Serrato and the way he's able to kind of keep this program together. 
Addison Kopech, he's a real he's a potential pro prospect. He may move behind the plate this year for them. They have some good pitchers. The guy I saw last year was a freshman. I don't see him on this list. I don't know if he came back, but there's they have some good hitters. There's some experienced hitters, Billy Butler, Calvin McCall, Mark Coley. So they they are a team that finished strong last year. They're, they have Kopech behind the plate. I think they're they're a good way to round out the top ten. What do you think of Rhode Island's roster this year? Yeah, Anthony Kopech going doing the reverse Craig Biggio going from shortstop to catcher yes. as opposed to the other way around. But one of the best hitters in the Northeast, maybe not, if not the best hitter in the Northeast. You know, hit three sixty five last year, seventeen bombs, sixty RBIs, just a monster season in every respect. I think you're talking about someone who's going to be one of the best players, one of the best pro prospects, as you alluded to around Anthony DePino. He had sixteen home runs last year. So when you're talking about talent in the Rhode Island lineup, I, it's undoubtedly there. I don't think there's any question about it. Tristan Levesque is a junior left-handed pitcher. I think they're going to be relying pretty heavily on heavily on him. You mentioned to it last year, a 7.2 ERA. You know, I feel like this has been a bit of a recurring issue, you know, recurring comment that we've been making about teams with pitching in the Northeast, you know, whether it's Boston College or Fairfield. A lot of these programs have top flight position players that have proven that they can move around from position to position. They're versatile, they're athletic, they're diverse in their skill set. But a lot of these programs are going to rely heavily on turnaround pitching from a year ago in order to be successful programs that had over five six seven ERAs from a year ago I think when you look across the board and it's particularly true with URI I think when I just mentioned those two players in in Addison Kopech and Anthony DePina are two of the best players position players in New England that you're going to find but a top to bottom across the board their pitching is going to be what's going to be the separator for them to compete in the A-10. They play in a really good conference with VCU, St. Louis. You're talking about top-of-the-line programs. Richmond's expected to be much better this year. And then in order to succeed, they're going to have to be able to develop Friday, Saturday, Sunday consistent pitching. That's something they weren't able to do last year, and it's going to be the success for them this time around. Yeah, the guy I saw last year, he looks like he's still on the roster, Ryan Andrade. He was a here-into-Friday start. He's a Rhode Island native. He throws hard. He was throwing, you know, low 90s in that game. So I don't know. He's not in Josh's write-up, so I don't know if he's hurt. But he's a guy that, you know, eventually could be a big-time player for them. So we're going to go through the last. So there's 10 more teams here. We're not going to go as in-depth on them. They These are the teams outside of our top 10. Maybe just a kind of quick hit comment on each one of these. Brown Bears, they they had a spring trip to the Dominican. They have a female player for them this year, Olivia Pichardo. They are a team kind of didn't have a great year last year. They were 8-13 and 13 in the Ivy, 13-23 and 23 overall. But it looks like they're at least kind of on the same page. It seemed like that Dominican trip really was good for them. Josh Cummins has an article on them in the winter edition, which is just coming out now. Dartmouth had a better year than I thought last year. 24 and 19 overall, 14 and 7 in the Ivy. They were in third place. They're not in our top 10. Harvard is. They were a fourth place team, but they have Tyler Cox back in the middle of the infield. Dartmouth, you don't see Dartmouth doing a lot of recruiting in the Northeast, or at least I don't see a lot of guys committing, but you look at their roster, they have a few guys in the Massachusetts area. How, how do you see Dartmouth's recruiting playing out at, with your travel ball program and for the guys that you're covering at, at the high school level? It's interesting. Someone I'm not going to mention the name because he's 
because I'll, I'll, it'll he'll attract attention. But someone once told me that they're shocked that Harvard doesn't win the national championship every year. And he was making a comment of like, well, why would forget the, the baseball side of things? If you want to get the best players and offer them a Harvard opportunity, how would you not want to go to Harvard if you're a prospective player? I feel like Harvard kind of has a, has had a dominance surrounding Ivy League recruiting in the Northeast here. I hear Yale come up a lot from prospective players. And I feel like Dartmouth's kind of flown under the radar in, in a lot of respects. They do have guys like Max Zajac, who is a Wellesley standout who's there now. Certainly seems to be a more Connecticut field roster than Massachusetts necessarily in a lot of respects. But I definitely think it's just, a, a, I guess, at least in the circles I work in, Harvard kind of being the Boston-based school that if you're looking for an Ivy League school, they're kind of the dream opportunity, I feel like, for a lot of prospective players up here. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point that, you know, I, I think there's some academic hurdles for guys to get into the school, but you're right. I mean, the guys that are going to Vanderbilt, you know, you could recruit them. Those are the, I'm sure they have great grades and test scores and everything like that. Hartford, 13 and 37 last year, 11 and 19 in America East. They're not even going to play in America East this year. I feel bad for anyone associated with the Hartford program over the last two years. That once they made the announcement that they're moving from Division One to Division Three, they a lot of guys transferred. Justin Blood, their great coach, ended up going to Keene State. So, I, you know, I just feel bad for anybody that's still hanging around Hartford and trying to compete at the D1 level when it's the writings on the wall that they're moving it to D3. A tremendously brutal story of a school that simply is not investing, not just in its athletics, but it's in its school across the board. This is a beyond baseball issue problem for the program. It reaches all the aspects of every sport, just a, a school that it's elected to abandon its student athletes, which have had a great history over the years across the board. And it's just, it's tough to see. It's tough to watch. It's a school that to me is just totally lost interest in providing any sort of value in the experience from that perspective forever. I don't know if it's still the same. I should have checked before I made this comment, but for the last three or four months, Hartford had one coach listed on its website and it was an assistant coach. So before Steve Malinowski came along. So to me, that's just kind of the, the tough thing is that it's a program. It's a school that, that, that doesn't seem to care. And I'm not talking about from the baseball coach's perspective. They certainly care. They're giving it everything they have, but it's a school overall that simply does not seem to have any sort of interest in valuing its student athletes. It just, it's just a bizarre scene to me, to be honest with you. <laughs> Holy Cross, I have some question marks there too. Ed Kovac is in his fourth season, 32 and 67 so far as his overall record. Last year, they were 17 and 37. I mentioned Nick Wang left for BC. A couple of their top players ended up transferring to other schools. Not a great sign, you know, on the heels of a 17-37 and 37 season. I did see they have had a couple of commitments in the last couple of weeks that grabbed my attention. Like, okay, well, that's good for Holy Cross. But a little concerning that a couple of guys left their program after last year. It's been interesting to me talking to Ed Kohovic about his recruiting strategy in terms of listening to him talk about how, you know, they're looking to become a much more national recruiting-oriented based school. And it's going to be interesting to see how that works or not, right? But he's talked to me about how when you go to California and you've got the best players, they're going to UCLA, they're going to USC, they're going to Stanford, they're probably going to Arizona, Arizona State, those schools in the Southwest. But what about that next-level player that's looking for a high academic school, maybe wants to move outside of the West Coast without going after those players? And so I know that they had a recent recruit on campus in, in the fall from Los Angeles. I'm not sure if he ended up actually committing or not, but there certainly seemed to be much making a much more concerted effort to target players 
well outside the Northeast, those players that are high academic players that can go to a school like a UCLA or a USC, very good schools in their own right, but maybe they're not that level where they can go play in the Pac-12 and as a result are looking elsewhere and they're trying to be that school that can kind of get that second tier player. Whether it's going to work or not, I don't know. I think it's a huge gamble to be perfectly honest with you, Dan. I think you've got so many great players right here that are high academic players. You're talking about players that, you know, want to go to BC or Harvard maybe and they've got great grades, but maybe they're not ACC level players, but I think there's so many players here up in the Northeast to go after. I'm going to be interested to see. It could totally work. You could talk about creating a, a culture and a team that brings players from different parts of the country, and, and it certainly can be successful in that respect. But I'm just going to be interested to see to whether or not a more national recruiting approach from Holy Cross pays dividends or not. You look at UMass, who is is kind of the the opposite of the recruiting strategy that Jim Penders is starting at UConn's big state university, state school. And we talked to Matt Reynolds on the podcast a few weeks ago. He really wants it to be like in-state recruiting and then, you know, homegrown talent development within his program, not really using the NCAA transfer portal as a tool. On the other hand, like you see BC this year has taken on a few more recruits than they have in the past. Northeastern, is kind of making that transition to taking more transfers. I wonder if Matt Reynolds, he, his career record, 69-120-1. Last year, they were 22-26-1, 8-16 Atlantic 10. I wonder if, if they don't experience um, much improvement this year, if he will start to look at the NCAA, trans, NCAA transfer portal as more of a recruiting tool. UMass is kind of an interesting situation. We talked about UMass Lowell, but of course, a school that can offer in-state tuition opportunities. They don't have a lot of athletic scholarship money, so there's not a lot of opportunities they can provide for out-of-state students that might need financial relief. So they really rely heavily, I think, on in-state players to commit there from a financial perspective. And they've got the Eisenberg School of Management, which is one of the best business schools, if not arguably the best business school for undergraduates in the country that they rely heavily on. To, to me, UMass is, is just, it's tough. I think it's tough to recruit there. I think when you look across the board, all sports they just have a tough time because of the investment level that they're competing against against other schools that they might not have necessarily when it comes to scholarship funding mm-hmm. but i agree with you i think umass might have to dip into the transfer portal to me the big thing there is just the finances they don't have a lot of scholarship money from my understanding for baseball and as a result they have to rely heavily on in-state players merrimack we've kind of talked about you mentioned alex haba or haba is it haba 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 i think haba he's a good player from franklin he's going to be in the middle of their infield michael galankowitz has had a good college career and he He's had some summer league success up here in New England. Merrimack, you know, they're a program. It's tough when you come in, as Brian Murphy did the first year. Last year, he was kind of a late. They got rid of Nick Barisi, who is now at UMass Lowell as an assistant coach late in the game over, you know, arguments about field, you know, what kind of the direction they were going to go in for Merrimack in terms of their home field, practice sites, things like that. So Murphy's really just getting a chance to make his mark. He hasn't He's probably been there a full year now, but he didn't really have a full transition offseason to get ready. So we'll see how they do this year. And then Quinnipiac, Sacred Heart, neither of those programs is coming off a great year. Quinnipiac is 15-33 and 33 last year. Sacred Heart was 12-41. and 41. So those two teams will look to rebound. Last, or no, we got two more schools that I want to ask you about. One, Stonehill. Transition to D1, how do you think that will go? What's their strategy? 
it's it's interesting, right? I mean, you have to wonder: is there pressure on the program to perform early? Not to go, they're not going forty and ten, but is there pressure to perform to some extent to show that the transfer was worthwhile? I think the tough thing now, and talking to, to head coach Pat Bowen down there, is just the infusion of of prospective players that have interest in Stonehill right now is as high as they've had it. You're talking about play, you know, before in the past they struggled to have a prospect camp that filled up. Now they got two hundred kids that want to go to their prospect camps because they're Division One baseball talent now. Right. I think this time around this year. They're going to probably struggle, if we're just being honest. I mean, it would be a tremendous story if they showcased that they could perform at that level early on, despite the fact that they can't compete in the postseason this year. Um, but I think that you're going to see players want to entertain Stonehill. You're talking about a school that has kind of potentially able to form a niche. Of course, not a Boston College, not a not a Holy Cross from the way that people view it from an academic prestigious standpoint. But what type of money do they have? What type of financial resources do they have? Pat Bowen's got a lot of respect to that school, a lot of respect across the board in college baseball. They've talked about it, and it sounds like they might build a new baseball turf field in the next year or two, which I think could, could have huge implications. I think Stonehill could become a Bryant. I think they can become maybe a Northeastern down the road in three to five years. I think they had the opportunity to develop a quality program. Bowen was very successful in the NE10, over 600 wins, of course. I think that speaks for itself. And so I think that Stonehill's got a chance. It's going to take some time, but I think they can become a school on par with Bryant in the next five years or so. Yeah, I could see. I think you're right, though. It's going to be tough sledding this year. They're coming off an 18 and 29 year, sixth place in the Northeast Division. You know, that's a now they're making a transition to D1. I could really see that being difficult in the first year or two. But like you said, I'm seeing more D1 borderline guys, you know, who maybe didn't get their D1 commitment coming in late and committing to Stonehill. So I think it's just a matter of time before they are playing at that D1 level. But yeah, it could be tough sledding this year. Yale, I think we are both in agreement. We've had Brian Hamm on the podcast. He was great. He's not going to be able to recruit the same way at Yale that he did at Eastern Connecticut. The transfer portal is kind of going to be closed to him. But just his experience, I'm betting on Brian Hamm. I think he's a guy who's going to make it work wherever he is. He's a great coach, and I like Yale's chances. Maybe not so much right away, but once he gets to really put a stamp on that program, I think they could be the premier team in the Ivy League. Yeah, no, I disagree with you. I disagree. I agree with you. Sorry, completely. I think it's going to take some time. Again, you're talking about a transformation, a new head coach, you know, someone who's going to have to adjust to those recruiting standards. I think when we had him on, we talked about that in terms of, you know, the scholarship aid that Ivy League schools can offer. No grad, you know, almost first of all, impossible to transfer into Yale to begin with, but then grad transfers from a baseball standpoint, extra years of eligibility, just so much different in terms of kind of the avenues that you have to follow. It was a dream job for him. It sounded like by all respects, it sounds like a place he wants to be potentially for the rest of his career. I think it could take some time to kind of figure out the players that you're going after. You're recruiting much more nationally at Yale than you are at Eastern Connecticut. That's for sure, because you've got players in Oregon and California that want to go to Yale or an Ivy League school. So I think it could take some time. But if his track record speaks for itself, right? I mean, and so from a baseball standpoint, I think you're talking about someone who's certainly going to get the program. It's hard to say going when the history that they've had there over the years, but certainly a program that's going to maintain that level of success. For sure. Yeah. All right, now we're going to finish off with a segment that our producer, David Yaz, came up with. He pitched this to us, and I like the idea. It's three up, three down. It's going to kind of give you a little bit more insight on the hosts and our baseball background and some of our favorite things, some of our experiences in the sport. So it's time for three up, three down, where Matt and I trade three questions from the world of baseball. Three up, three down. I'll ask you a question first. And Dave, David Yaz supplied us with these questions. So I'm going to pick one that I like. I know that you've covered a ton of baseball over the years. What's the most bizarre thing 
you have ever seen on a baseball field? Wow. I've seen a lot of bizarre things on the field. I, I saw a coach once caught radioing in, radioing in signals to the catcher via walkie-talkie, which I thought was a little unusual. <laughs> I haven't seen that too often. That was, in a, that was in a high school game. I once saw in a college game, time was called because a family with a, with a stroller not knowing, I guess, that they weren't allowed to do this, just like ran across the outfield mid-pitch from the first baseline into left center field, just like right in front of the center fielder. So that's probably the most bizarre thing that I've seen on a field that I can think of. It was just like three nine-year-olds just like running in center field, like mid-pit. I'm like, what's what's happening here? Oh, <laughs> I've seen so many. Um, I know we're supposed to trade this, but I want to jump in on this too. I Once I went to cover a Little League game, 12-year-old Little League game. Okay. And a coach just bypassed the pitch count, just <laughs> was like, I'm leaving this kid on the mat. I don't care what the rules are. Parents start getting upset. He's like threatening other parents to keep their mouth shut about the pitch count. It was it was a bizarre little league <laughs> experience for me. Another one, a high school baseball coach got suspended by the school for like verbal abuse of a player. And so I go to cover the game and he's standing in the parking lot outside the fence in the outfield, continuing to verbally abuse the player that he got suspended for. It was not a good scene, but you see all kinds of bizarre stuff on the baseball field. That's an understatement. What is the toughest defensive position in baseball? I would think catcher. Don't you think it's catcher? I think it's catcher. Yeah. I think if you don't have a good catcher, your team is just automatically doomed for failure. Yeah. Yeah, you're in, you're like the captain back there. You're calling pitches. You know, you have to know situations. I think the outfield, you know, you can zone out a little bit, even in the infield. It's probably, a, a, I don't, I mean, maybe like if it's at Fenway right field or, you know, the outfield, but... I think it's catcher. All, One thing, thing, all things being equal, what's second? Center field, I think. Ooh, shortstop? Maybe shortstop turning double plays. You're the busiest in the inf- infield. Center field. I feel like some people are just blessed with, you know, they, they can track down balls in center field and they have a good arm. and and they're But shortstop, maybe you have to make more plays, you know, different types of plays. I would say shortstop. Yeah. Center, yeah, no, center field will be up there. The catcher thing kind of fascinates me. I don't know why I'm thinking of this now, but during the early stages of the pandemic in 2020, Delaware was having summer baseball. I don't know if it was Legion or Little League, whatever it was. So they had to put new rule modifications in because of the fact the pandemic was ongoing. No catcher in the game because they were within six feet of the batter. So pitchers would just throw to the backstop. <laughs> and then the pitchers would determine whether it was a ball and a strike or on their own accord. It was kind of the most ridiculous thing I'd ever read about. Talk about bizarre things on the yeah, baseball field. Yeah, we're back field. to the bizarre <laughs> things. All right. I like this one. Are there truly any situations where baseball etiquette must prevail, such as stealing a base in a route or bunting during a no hitter? So at professional baseball, I would say I think you're talking about the best players in the world playing off, against, you know, facing off against one another. I don't care if it's 13 nothing, you steal second base like the catcher's more than good enough to throw the runner out. So if they're that good of a player, which they are because they're playing Major League Baseball, I, I just I don't know. I've never had a problem with it. Tony La Russa got mad at the 3-0 swing a couple of years ago with the man as the manager of the White Sox. I thought it was just like laughable. Again, we're talking about the best players on the planet playing against each other. You know, the 3-0 pitch does not have to be a fastball right down the middle for a grand slam. In high school, I would say absolutely, right? The score's 12-1 in the set, you know, top of the seventh. You're the road team up 12-1. to You shouldn't be stealing third base. You shouldn't be stealing second base. You know, I, I, I've I got different problems in terms of, like, pimping home runs. There's one thing for celebrating a home run. There's another one just standing in the batter's box and just eyeing it and eyeing the dugout down. So I think in high school, I definitely believe that there is areas where baseball etiquette is needed. Some sort of respect is needed. Some sort of understanding that... 
you know, Johnny on the opposing dugout who's 15 and maybe he's only playing his second year of organized baseball is not going to come back from a 12-run deficit. So maybe stealing third in that circumstance is not necessarily needed. I like that <laughs> they made the minimum requirement for the number of pitchers you have to face coming out of the bullpen because I felt like late in games, you know, it'd be like eight to one and, you know, Joe Girardi's coming out and changing pitchers after each <laughs> yeah. batter and they're like, come on, man, let's finish up the game. I like that they changed that. What is the worst rule in baseball? Ooh, worst rule in baseball. Let me think about that. Hmm. Infield fly rule is always one that I feel like is too hard to, like, when the ball's in the air, you have to think, like, all right, do I want to get a force out here? And then, you know, is this an infield fly rule? I think that's always a confusing one to think of so fast on the spot. Other ones, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of implementing the pitch clock, but I do think it can drag on with some guys. Like I remember the Josh Beckett era where you'd just be like, please throw the pitch. You know, he'd stand up there all day. But I don't like having a clock on that stuff. Like that's kind of the beauty of baseball, no clock on the field. So yeah, maybe the pitch clock. I hate the, well, it's a new rule. The abandoning of the shift to me drives me crazy. I think you've got nine fielders. You should be able to put them wherever you want. Uh, it's incredibly hard already. It is, it is not just not only hit a baseball, but field a baseball. Make sure your players are in the right position to field the baseball coming off the bat at 105 miles an hour. I think you've got nine fielders. I don't care if you put them all in left field. I think you should be able to put your fielders wherever you want, and it's on the pitcher, the hitter, to make the appropriate adjustments back and forth and that sort of back and forth game that they play, a mind game that they play to, to outmaneuver one another. But I am so against abandoning the shift. To me, that has had no ill effect. There are so many problems with, with Major League Baseball when it comes to pace of play and reasons maybe people aren't going or is watching over the years from a younger generation standpoint. To me, the shift is at like the bottom of the list. <laughs> Was that three each, or do you want to do one more? Yeah, we can go one more. I will go one more. What is your favorite memory of Little League Baseball? I've got one home run in my career, and it was a 12-year-old Little League, three-run bomb when I was 12 years old to left field. I think that's by far my favorite memory. Dave, you have any uh, Little League memories? I had one Little League home run also, but it was a preseason game, which now I'm now I'm thinking back wondering, why do we have preseason games in Little League? But my favorite memory is probably one that I wasn't involved in. My dad always coached Little League. And there was just the one game that sticks out in my mind. We were rallying in the last inning, still down by two runs, I think, with a couple men on base, two outs. The opposing team, he, the, the guy strides out to the mound and brings in his son to close out the game. And his son happens to be the best pitcher in the league. He wasn't starting that day. So, like, we're doomed. And there was this kind of a kid from the other side of the tracks named John McClain, who since went on to become a, a firefighter. He's just a tough kid. And first pitch, the guy cranked it over the outfielder's head for a walk-off home run. So... And every time I see firefighter John McClain around town, I remind him of that home run. <laughs> my favorite was when I was nine years old, my little league team won the championship. My dad was a coach. Uh, yeah, that was a good, but the, so my team was undefeated. It was just a wagon that year. We had a ton of good kids who ended up, you know, playing good high school players at least. And so that team, we were undefeated with like, Four games left in the regular season. The team that we played, the umpire didn't show up, so we had to supply the umpire. We picked just a random volunteer, you know, out of the stands, asked him to do it, and then he forgot his glasses. So he, he was calling like an awful game, but it was he was calling it both ways. And the opposing coach called my dad, who was the head coach for my team, after the game and was like, that was ridiculous that you put that guy behind the plate. We're going to beat you when we face you again. So we played them in the championship. My dad was so, like, fired up going in like we have to beat this team we ended up beating them so that's that was my little my one little league championship memory but that was a good one but dave i love this segment this will we'll do this every yeah, time 100 i'll keep the questions coming gentlemen i loved it as well right on <laughs> 
Well, thank you for listening to our D1 preview for the college baseball season. David Yaz is our producer. Rate, review, subscribe to the Base Path Podcast on your preferred platform. Thanks again for listening to the Base Path Podcast. Podcast.